I want to invite you right now, if you would take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of 2 Chronicles. If you're using the Purack Bible, you'll find it on page 359 in that Bible. Uh, But turn to chapter 7, and uh, I want to bring a message this morning entitled, What Would Bring the Greatest Blessing to America? What would bring the greatest blessing to America? Uh, While you're finding your place in your copy of God's Word, I do want to take just a moment to express my appreciation to all those uh, across the sanctuary here who uh, took part in this past week's Vacation Bible School. Uh, On some nights, we had as many as about 550 people here. It was a great week of VBS. And I tell you what, if you worked in VBS in some capacity this past week, Would you stand just a minute, please? We'd like to recognize you. If you served in any capacity, yes, all over the church, let's give these folks a hand. Amen. Obviously, we could not have Vacation Bible School without our dedicated workers who pray and prepare in the weeks and days leading up to that event. And uh, on the evangelism nights, we saw a number of... uh, Uh, Kids and young people come to faith in Christ and uh, we would assume uh, over the coming weeks we will see some of those make their decisions uh, public in church. And so you pray for them and their families and you pray for them as they begin the Christian uh, walk. But again, thank you for uh, your part in that. Uh, Again, I do want to encourage you, as Kevin's already said tonight, bring your favorite churn of homemade ice cream and uh, we'll uh, enjoy a God and country service in here uh, together tonight with Alex and the choir. Uh, Alex, you picked the wrong time to come south from Michigan, didn't you? Came into a heat wave. But anyway, um, good to have Alex back with us and uh, he and the choir tonight as they lead us in worship. And then we'll go over and enjoy some Uh, Good old homemade ice cream together. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? And what I'd like to do is back up in uh, chapter 7. If we could back up to uh, verse 11. And then I'll read down through verse 18. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven And will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, In keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know in the, in the Word of God you tell us that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Father, we hear verses like that, and of course we obviously have great concerns for our nation. Father, we pray for a revival in the church in America, how desperately we need it. We pray that you would move in the hearts and lives of your people and that there would be a change. God, we know that uh, in the Word of God there in 2 Peter 3 that we're told that we're to be waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And until then, God, we're to be salt and light in this world. We're to make a difference. Father, we want to pray for those in charge. We're told that we're to pray for uh, all people and especially for kings and all those who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so, God, we pray for our leaders. We pray, God, that you would give them your wisdom from above, that you would do a work in their hearts, that they would turn and seek your wisdom. Lord, how we love this country and the freedoms that we have. We're enjoying something this morning that millions around the globe are not able to do. I think of that beloved Iranian pastor that we've been praying for for months who simply because he names the name of Christ, he's imprisoned in that country under a death sentence. What a high privilege we have to come here. God, I pray that we would not take that lightly. Father, we pray for the message this morning that this message might awaken in us a renewed concern for your people. Lord, that with hearts of commitment and righteousness that we would serve you in this dark world. Lord, that we would see that the answers to the land are not simply to be found in Raleigh or any other state capital or Washington, D.C., but the answers to the problems of the land are in our hearts as your people. God, renew your church, revive your church. Do a work within us. Father, we do want to pause to take a moment this morning to reflect on those who are fighting for liberty all over the globe this morning, that you would bring them back safely to their families. We thank you for those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. Lord, use this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to listen to the words of Benjamin Franklin. I've given those to you in your sermon notes. At the Constitution Convention, June 28, 1787, he wrote, I've lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this and I also believe that 
without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our partial local interest. Our projects will be confounded. We ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate in that service. Then Abraham Lincoln said, It's the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God. To confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Folks, that's been our heritage in this nation until fairly recently. Just a matter of weeks ago, you of course know that Chuck Colson passed away and in his book Against the Night he says volumes about how far we've drifted. He says we're entering a, dark, uh, a new dark age brought on by relativism, radical individualism and materialism. People have grown accustomed to the dark. They don't even realize that the lights are out. We see in our text for today that it is God's blessing on a land that truly is what brings prosperity to that land. But we could further define it to say that God's people in a land have much to say about God's blessing on that land. What we do has a definite bearing on what God does. And so this text both addresses God's people as well as the actions of God's people. We're going to look at both of those this morning. I want us to see God's people by adoption and secondly God's people by action. First of all, God's people by adoption. He says here in verse 14, he says, If my people who are called by my name. Now folks, we know that God adopted a people beginning there in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans to go to, uh, to a new place. Uh, uh, to the land that was to become Israel and God was going to, to adopt and, and grow and, and choose and use a new people in that land who would be a witness to him around the world. And so God led his people eventually out of Egypt and the bondage there and he led them to the promised land. God had given them leaders that were supposed to lead them correctly. We know that Saul was the first king who failed miserably. And then God raised up David. 
David was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to build a temple for God, but God said because he was a man of blood, God was going to leave that work to David's son, Solomon. Now in chapter 7, we see that the temple has just been completed. Solomon has been caught up in prayer, and he's dedicating the temple to God. Let's go back into chapter 6 because I want you to see some of his requests there. If you were to look at verse 21, Solomon said, And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then look down at verse 24. He says, If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you and and, and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. Then in verse 26 he says, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which which you've given to your people as an inheritance. In verse 28 he says, if there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or, or locusts or caterpillar, if their if enemies besage them in, in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, uh, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven. And so over and over again in chapter 6, as as Solomon has brought the people together, he's he's finished the temple and and they're having this dedication service there and, and Solomon is praying and making specific petitions to God. We see in chapter 7 that chapter 7 is the answer to Solomon's request. You see folks, God was pleased by Solomon's efforts on the temple. Now today, of course, we're the temple. When we give priority and attention to the church, the bride of Christ, that must please our Heavenly Father. It is honoring to God whenever we expend our energies on those things that God is about. God responded to Solomon with both promises and warnings. God promised both blessing or cursing on the land in Old Testament times. You see, in the Old Testament times, the land factored in in a major way. And so, therefore, God's favor could be seen in abundant harvest, for example. And likewise, God's disfavor could be seen in things like floods or locusts or drought. An example of that would be in the book of 1 Kings when Ahab and Jezebel were ruling the land and they were carrying the land further into Baalism and ungodliness. What did God do? God sent the prophet Elijah to prophesy against them. And he said, uh, what you need to do is you need to pray and you need to announce that there's going to be a drought in the land for three years and there was drought. And then after three years when Ahab is looking for Elijah, God said, go and 
show yourself and, and, and pray again after that confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, God said that once again he was going to bring showers on the land and abundance. And so the land factored in a, a major way in the Old Testament. Now, folks, as far as today's time, I would be uncomfortable saying that every flood or drought or earthquake we see is a judgment of God. But I would be just as uncomfortable saying that some floods or droughts or earthquakes we see are never the judgment of God. But again, God is instructing Solomon here on the details of all this. God is giving Solomon a prescription for healing and revival in the land and for a fresh encounter with him. And what is it that we learn first here? We learn that God's people, God's people are the key to the land. God's people, if you will, are the most valuable players in the land. Now, they're not recognized as such by the world. It's, it's ironic that the world persecutes the very people who are their only hope. This past week in Vacation Bible School, in Acts chapter 5, for instance, we see that they, they beat and they persecuted the very people who were bringing the good news to them. God's people in the land are the hope for that land. Folks, the real hope for America today, on the human level that is, the real hope for America today is the church. But oftentimes God's people are in need of such great change. And all but one of two churches in Asia Minor there in Revelation 2 and 3, there was something that they needed to address. For example, I think of that church at Ephesus that did so much good and they worked their fingers to the bone, but God said there to the church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love to me, you've lost your devotion to me, and if you don't straighten that out, I'm going to remove your candlestick. In other words, he was going to remove the church out of that location. In 1 Peter 4, the Bible says the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. What is it that God's people need? It's the exact thing that he is addressing right here in 2 Chronicles 7. God's people need renewal. God's people need revival. You see, renewal and revival is not for the sinner. The sinner needs regeneration. You know, in the church, it's like we're depending on the world out there to clean up their act and get themselves right. We say things if, you know, if we could only elect the right people to office as though we were trusting in politics. Or, or if we could get rid of all the bars in the land, or if we could get rid of all drugs or homosexuality or abortion, if we could just get rid of all those things, everything would be right in the land. And, and I want to be clearly understood, it'd be great if we could get rid of all those things. It'd be good if we could get, get Christian people in office. You know, we've, we've heard a lot this week from, uh, we've heard a lot about 
Chief Justice Roberts this week. I want to tell you something. The first Chief Justice said about America. The, the man that George Washington appointed, John Jay. You know what he said? He said, Providence has given to our people the choice of our rulers. It is the duty and privilege and interest of our Christian nation to prefer Christians as our rulers. Folks, could you imagine if somebody on the Supreme Court said that today? It'd be great to get the right people in office. It'd be great to get rid of some of these social ills of the day. But my point is, it's like we in the church are waiting and depending on America to get right. But folks, it ought to be the other way around. It ought to be America depending on the church to get right. We've got to realize that lost people are going to act like lost people. It's our job to take the gospel to them. Our biggest problem is that we've got more of the the world in the church than we have of the church in the world. Jesus didn't pray that the Father would take the church out of the world, but rather that he would take the world out of the church. I want you to understand today, it is a great privilege to to be a Christian. It's an honor to be a a Christian. It's wonderful to say, I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm part of the bride of Christ. But not only is it a great privilege, but there's great responsibility involved in it as well. Every one of us here are responsible for the spiritual life and vigor uh, of this church, our community, of this nation. Folks, if you and I will wake up, as the adopted children of God and start acting like the adopted children of God and make ourselves available to God, what could God do? Well, what needs to be further said about God's people? I want you to notice secondly with me, God's people by action. God's people by action. He goes on to say there, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You know, we, we, often, we, we fall so far short of who we are to be as God's people. What are we to be about as God's people? And that's what he addresses here. First of all, we see that by action, what are we to be? We're to be a humble people. A humble people. Who's responsible for this? We are. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Folks, that ought to be easy, but, but we find it difficult. It ought to be easy because of man's depravity. But we find it difficult. I want us to think a moment about two different aspects of man as as man is addressed in the Bible. Two different aspects of man. I want you to stay with me here a moment because I'm going somewhere with this under the second aspect that we'll look at again to show how it ought to be very easy for us to be humble. But as we look at two different aspects of man in the Bible, we, we see first of all, That the Bible lifts man up and exalts man to a very high position. In fact, uh, the psalmist asked, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You see, we learn from the very beginning of the Bible that man is created in the very image and likeness of God. The imago dei, the image of God. 
Folks, I tell you what, people in secular society today are, are groping around and they're trying to find some kind of achievement that will lift man up to his highest. But it's the Bible that lifts man up to his highest because it's the Bible that tells us we were created in the image of God. Wayne Gruden has a wonderful section in, on the image of God in the man uh, that, it, it, that he writes about in his systematic theology. If you've ever got a, a chance to get your hand on that little section, he writes it, it it's, it's worth the time and effort to read that. It's a great little section. He points out that the image of God in man no doubt refers to man's intellectual ability, to his moral purity, to his spiritual nature, to, to dominion over creation, to his creative capability. The ability to make ethical choices and, and, and immortality. But then uh, Gruden wisely counsels us to be cautious about limiting ourselves too much. Because the words for image and likeness of God refer to something similar but not identical to the things that it represents. And so the words mean that we represent God. And so when you're talking about an infinite God without assigning incommunicable attributes to man, you have to leave open the possibility that image and likeness of God communicates a great deal about man. Man is made in the image of God, of course, without possessing those incommunicable attributes that God alone possesses. Things like his sovereignty and, and omniscience. Obviously, we don't possess those things being made in the image of God. We don't possess those incommunicable attributes of God. But those Hebrew words being made in the image and likeness of God mean a great deal. Of course, in the fall. The image of God was distorted without being lost. And so in redemption and sanctification where we're to be conformed to the very image of Christ. We recapture some of what the image of God is supposed to be. And then when Christ returns we'll realize fully once again what man was supposed to be as he was created in the image of God. And so my point is in the Bible... In the Bible, we see man lifted up to a very high and lofty status. But on the other hand, the Bible is very honest about our condition now. Because what happened in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis... Adam and Eve, our first parents, they listened to the deceiver. They listened to the enemy. They listened to Satan. And, and what do we see there? We see the fall of man. And, and we see in the Bible how the fall of man affected all of creation. To where all of creation now even is groaning for that day of redemption. But the Bible, here, here man is lofty and exalted. Created in the image of God. And God breathed that living soul into him. But then something happened to man. He failed. He transgressed. He rebelled against God. Folks, we need to understand the severity of our condition. Sometimes people have very shallow views of, of redemption. They, they look at redemption as, as sort of like taking your child for a well-visit well checkup. The doctor looks at your child and, and you get a good report... 
But the doctor says, you know what, there, there, there are a few little things that you could maybe tweak a little bit. You know, I see some indications here that, that maybe your child needs some more vitamin D or vitamin C. People look at redemption that way. The thought is we just need a little bit of tweaking. Lost man just needs a little bit of tweaking. And he'll be okay. And that's how they think of salvation. Or a more drastic image that's still not correct would be the ICU room. Here's a person on life support. And we view salvation as they're, as they're able to come off life support. Folks, those are not correct images of redemption. You want to know what the correct image of redemption is? Go out here on this side of the church and look at what? Look at the graveyard. What's the Bible say about man? We're dead in trespasses and sins. What's it mean to be dead? To be dead doesn't mean that you just need a little bit of tweaking or that you even need to visit the ICU department. It goes beyond that. To be dead means what? It means you're dead. And that's why the Bible speaks of conversion as being a a state whereby we are regenerated by the Spirit of the living God. We are born again. Folks, just because somebody walks an aisle in the church and fills out a commitment card and joins uh, joins a, a local church assembly does not, by any stretch of the imagination, mean that they have been saved. Regeneration is something when the Holy Spirit of the living God gets a hold of a man's heart, a woman's heart, convicts them of their sin, draws them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the Holy Spirit of the living God using the Word of God that brings about the new birth in a man or a woman. It is a miracle that only God can do. It's the work of God. Folks, that ought to change us. That ought to, you know what, where, where, where redemption, where true salvation has taken place, there, there ought to be a, a passion in our hearts for the things of God, for the Word of God, for the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, for worship, for being about God's business. I would say to somebody, if there's not been that change in your heart, then very likely you've joined a church without joining Christ. You need Jesus. You need redemption. You see, man is lost. Man is dead in in trespasses and sins. And when we understand that, when we understand our hopeless condition and the depths out of which God raised us, a situation we could do nothing about it on our own, when we understand the glorious salvation that God has wrought in us and that I'm not responsible for my own salvation, then you know what? Before God, it ought to be very easy to be humble. Because without his work, I would be hopeless and helpless. Without his work, I'd still be in that graveyard. I'd still be dead in trespasses and sins and on my way to an eternity without Christ. 
We need to be reminded of what Jesus said in John 15, that he's the vine, we're only the branches. We can do absolutely nothing without him. And so, folks, humility ought to be very easy for the child of God. Now, oftentimes it's difficult because we lay our lives down alongside uh, of other people that, that maybe we de- determine they're, they're a little more sophisticated or or, or, or we, we deem ourselves maybe a little more sophisticated or, or erudite than they are. And so we compare ourselves with other people and, and we might walk away feeling pretty good, but, but other people are not the standard. We, we don't look at other people just like we don't look at the first Adam in Scripture. We look at Christ, the second Adam. And when we put our lives up next to Him... Then like Isaiah, what do we cry out? We cry out, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm unclean. And I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm done for. reason we don't see revival in America today, revival in the church today, folks, is we've not, we've not gotten low enough. We've not humbled ourselves. I think of that testimony years ago of Muhammad Ali when he got on a plane and before the plane took off, he was entertaining all the passengers there. And the stewardess came along and said, uh, uh, Sir, you'll need to be seated and put on a seatbelt. And he looked at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, Yeah, and Superman don't need no plane either. So sit down and put on your seatbelt. But that's, that's the pride we see all around us today. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. We need to be a humble people. Not only a humble people, but a praying people. A praying people. He says, If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray. Now, folks, I, I really think this grows out of humility. If we see ourselves as God sees us, it'll not be very difficult at all to realize that we need to call upon the name of the Lord out of sheer desperation. And in fact, we, we see that we even need to ask, Give us this day our daily bread. We only stand because of the grace and mercy of God. Every breath we take is a gift of a benevolent God. Dr. Jerry Vines, pastor emeritus of the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, as well said, when you try education, you get what education can do. When you try science, you get what science can do. When you try psychology, you get what psychology can do. But when you try prayer, you get what only God can do. Leonard Ravenhill once said the church is dying on her feet because she's not living on her knees. The power of prayer. What strongholds are there in your life? What temptations are there in your life? What struggles do you face in your Christian life that you need to go before God in prayer? Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought in captivity to the obedience of Christ. A humble people, a praying people. What's the third thing he mentions here? 
What should characterize God's people by action? Well, it'll be a seeking people, right? There's something profoundly active about seeking. Seeking and stagnation are polar opposites. Too many are are saved and satisfied. There's no seeking. There's only stagnation. They're, They're living off of yesterday's experiences and they're quite satisfied to do so. But folks, seeking communicates something much different. The man on his face before God crying out because if God doesn't move in his life and and manifest himself in his life and change his life, then there's no hope. That's the picture of seeking. There's this thought of of every fiber of our being that that is yearning towards God. And God said when we're like that, when we seek for him with all of our heart, we'll find him. Jesus going off into the wilderness for For 40 days. That's the picture of seeking God. Elijah out in the wilderness by the brook. uh, Staying there. That's a picture of a a man seeking God. I think of that rumor of of W.A. Criswell early on in his ministry. I've not been able to confirm it. It's a rumor though that early in the days of his ministry he was just fraught with all kinds of doubts. He had doubts about this and that and even doubts about his salvation. And finally, he got, he got his Bible one day in his office and he, and he closed it up and he put it under his arm and he walked out of his office there at First Baptist of Dallas. He locked, uh, uh, locked up the door and said, God, you and I are going out into the wilderness today and I'm not coming back until I settle these issues of doubts. And he came back a renewed man. A ministry on fire. That's the picture of seeking. Have you ever sought God with even anything approaching that? God says to Solomon here, that's how his people are supposed to be. We're we're to be a people who seek nothing but God and God's glory. And folks, if that were the case in the church today, think about the difference the church could make. Think about the difference that millions and millions of people with only one agenda, God's glory, could accomplish on this globe. Be amazing. Finally, we see here a repentant people. He says that they would pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. A repentant people. What about a people so desiring of God that anything in their lives that does not glorify Him would, they would want to cut out of their lives as quickly as they could? Any thoughts, any motives, any words, any actions, one and all, they're, they're put before God. And if God is not pleased by something in your life, you cast it aside. An attitude where you love God more than you love sin. What could God do in a life like that? You see, folks, prayer without repentance is a waste of time. That's why the psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Today, people want purity without penance. They want cleansing without confession. They want revival without repentance. And it is simply not going to happen. 
Church, envision these verses, all of these verses here describing the body of Christ. What could God do? Again, what could He do? What would He do with a, with a collective people like that? It's amazing. It's amazing what He could do. Uh, again, referring back to Thursday night of VBS, we saw what God did with those early apostles. They lived with that kind of devotion and determination. And, and they went out and they were small in number, and yet the Bible says they literally shook the world upside down. Think of how God could still shake a nation. He says here that He would hear. You see, we need repentance because it's sin that keeps them from hearing. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. But folks, with sin out of the way, he would hear, he would forgive, he would heal. Is our nation in need of that? You better believe it. I think more so than I've ever seen in my life. So I want you to notice something here. Don't miss this. In God's sovereignty and His mighty providence, He's placed the key to revival and renewal in our hands. God is basically saying here in this verse, If you will, then I will. As a nation, we have two choices. Either God hears and heals or he confronts and condemns. And there's not a one of us in here today that I, I believe who doesn't crave for God to do more of these things in our lives. But again, we hold the key to whether it will happen or not. We're at a crossroads. A crossroads of belief. We're definitely at a crossroads in our country. Listen to these words of Woodrow Wilson in his last address to America. He said, our, our civilization cannot survive materially unless we are redeemed spiritually. And Bill Bennett said, material gains will not be enough here. If we achieve full employment and greater economic growth, if we have a city of gold and alabaster, but our children have not learned how to walk in, in goodness, justice, and mercy, then the American experiment, no matter how gilded, will have failed. How true. How true. Folks, I want to challenge you this week as we think about America to not only pray for America, but pray for the church in America. You know what? In many circles we find a church that doesn't even preach the gospel anymore. And in churches that, many churches that still do preach the gospel, all you find is they're awash in a cold orthodoxy and, and materialism and nothing's really done with what they preach. We need to pray for the church. Could, could you imagine if, if a great awakening were to, were to take part again, take place again in this nation like what took place in, in, in the 18th and 19th centuries in, in, in this nation and across the sea? And those great awakenings, 
God so shook continents. It, it said that policemen, policemen even had to find something else to do with their time, like be crossing guards or something, because there wasn't even any crime being committed. Could you imagine something like that? The answer for America, according to our text today, is not Washington, but it's the church. And who's the church? You and I are the church. Are we living like the church? Are we humble and and praying and seeking and repentant? Or are we the church? In name only. Are you a part of the adopted people of God? Have, have you come by faith to God, to God uh, placing your faith in Christ and Christ alone? Have you been redeemed? Have you been adopted into God's family? If not, then you need to say, oh God, please redeem my soul. Do your sovereign work of redemption in my soul. That I'll be born again. That I'll be a new creation in Christ. God, do that work in my heart. If he has and you've gotten away, quite frankly, you've taken your eyes off of him. And you're not humble before him anymore. And you're not praying and you're not seeking. And and you're you're not staying on top of sin in your life. Confessing sin and staying on your your face before God for a time each day. and, and, And asking for God's power to be evident in your life. And do his work in your life. If you've gotten away from that. Then say, God, bring that passion and devotion. Bring that fire back in my life. You know what? As God brings that fire back in your life, He's going to impact somebody next to you. Would you stand, please? Our hymn of invitation be on the screens behind me. Like I say, if you're you're not sure that you're a member of the adopted family of God, boy, you you need to nail that down. Do you know that you've been born again? If you have, are you living like these verses prescribe? Or are you just saved and satisfied? What's God wanting to challenge or address in your life? Say, oh God, give me ears to hear.